So, Trentster. Yeah, that's my What nickname. you been eating? What you been eating, T-Man, T-Dog? Awesome. Um, people call me all those names often. So, here I am drinking my morning coffee. And on one hand, I could just tell you about that. But on the other hand, I could share a valuable life lesson. Which do you want, Parth? You tell me. Um, I'm in the I'm in the mood for some life lessons. Let's hear it. So, Parth, are you familiar with the modern technology known as um, the Keurig? I believe it's a French word for um, for for coffee machine. Uh, uh oui. Okay. Um, so in college, me and my roommate had one of these little mechanisms, and we had like a hundred K cups, and we were like, "How do we make?" these last the entire year and then we thought you can probably use these more than once and that's when we learned that you do one cup and then you open the machine and then you close it again and it thinks that you've put a new cup in there and then you can just get a whole second cup of coffee out of it and so I just nursed uh, I've been on the same K cup for the past like three days because it's just running water through the same coffee grounds. It's perfectly good. It gets a little bit more diluted each time, and there's definitely like a linear decrease in the amount of caffeine you're receiving, so it it's regressing in its ability to give you energy. But if you're just looking for like a brown liquid, it'll continue to give you that pretty much indefinitely. Um, now you know that, tell me about you. Wow, Trent, that was a really cool story. I really liked it. Um, and that's a really cool bit where you act unimpressed by everything I do. It's not a bit. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm Trent, laughing at your bit. I'm serious. I really like every time you talk. It's every time you talk, it's riveting, and I'm like enthralled. Yeah, I can feel the enthusiasm in your voice, but it's your turn to talk now. Everyone's been patiently waiting. I had nothing to eat thus far. Um, and then I was like, oh shit, I got to do craft services, my podcast. The so podcast. I took a, I took a handful of honey nut Cheerios, shoved those in my mouth. And, um, here we are. Do you want to know who are sociopaths? The people who eat regular Cheerios without the honey coating. Those people, um, suck. They have, no mo- they have no moral backbone and clearly they have no taste for breakfast cereals or, or they're babies, like literal babies. Why? Because babies are the only people who would, like, tolerate such bland food? Yes. I feel the same way about normal Cheerios as I do about rice cakes. I like, I like is a strong word in regards to rice cakes, but rice cakes are one of those snacks where it's just like, I'm hungry. It Rice cakes are kind of like the water of solid food, where you're like, this tastes like nothing. But I don't mind it, but it no, it isn't filling or doesn't seem to have any real nutritional value yeah um i i'm not a fan of rice cakes they're just the most boring thing you could possibly eat but i I, i'm really not a huge proponent of eating dry cereal but it seems like you feel differently seems like you're just tossing that shit in your mouth any chance you get well, if you must know, uh, when I was like three, I had cereal with milk once, and I like threw up. Was it the milk? Um, Wait, but you really no, like I don't... milk. We've talked. I about love this. milk. Yeah, we have. But I like my milk separate, and it's only because this one time that I had it when I was like three years old, I was like, "Ugh, I threw up." That means 
I should never have cereal with milk. Having said that, uh, in recent times, I've ventured out a little bit. I've had some cocoa uh, crisps or whatever they're called. Yeah. Um, or cocoa pebbles or whatever the fuck. One, one of the um, cocoa cereals, yeah. I'm cocoa for cocoa puffs. Um, it wasn't that. Well, cocoa pebbles are the ones with Fred Fl- Fred Flintstone, and cocoa puffs are the one with the bird that you just did a horrible impression of. So they're very different. Yeah, I mean that's exactly how it sounds. But um, anyways, I had I had those with milk, and um, they were pretty good. I also had Lucky Charms with milk, and they were pretty good. So maybe I'm reversing my position a little bit. But but things like Apple Jacks or Fruit Loops or Honey Nut Cheerios, I would never have with milk. I have a similar relationship with peas where I ate peas once as a as a little one and vomited them up and I am staunchly opposed to revisiting peas because I have trauma in that department. Well, now that we've unpacked our emotional baggage, let's start the show. Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about movies. Each week we discuss a different film and hopefully have an interview with a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience. This week we discuss Tenet, Christopher Nolan's latest release. With us we have Kevin Bitters, the senior special effects technician and pyrotechnician on the film. It was a good conversation. He's worked on a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, I enjoyed it, Parth. Did you? Yeah, it was a it was a good time. He was um, a lot of fun, really giving, if you will. It was daytime here, but oh, all the way over there in South Africa, it was nighttime. So we opened up the conversation, and like, "Hey, how's your day going?" He was like, "Hey, it's nighttime. Get it right." It, in in exactly that tone as well. So um, lesson learned about time change. Go, going forward. For the, for the next few months at least, our podcast is going to be operating on three different time zones, generally. Because, yeah. Because they... I'm I'm in one time zone. I'm in the East Coast. Trent, you are... Uh, mountain time. Mountain time. And um, generally, people that we interview are either in California or in some other country, so... Yeah, last week, the, Sh- the Chicago 7 people, they were in the Midwest time zone. I'm not sure what the, what the book definition. That's central. 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 And this guy's in Africa, which is a ways away. Not exactly sure exactly where that is, but it's a continent. So it's probably big and probably to the east of us. That much I know. Well, since we've gotten our geography out of the way, Trent, do you want to cut to the interview? Yes. All right. Enjoy. <laughs> do it. Everybody, and welcome to our interview with Kevin Bitters. He's a special effects mastermind who's worked on such films as District 9, Avengers Age of Ultron, Mad Max Fury Road, Beast of No Nation, and our film for today, Christopher Nolan's Tenet. Thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, guys. 
Uh, we like to start off by asking all of our guests what got you interested in working in the film industry in general and how you got into your more specialized field. Um, so I, I actually only ever got into special effects. I never started in any other department. Um, uh, the long and the short of it is my uncle is a special effects supervisor. He owns his own special effects company and I'd known about it for years since I grew up, he was in, in film. And um, somebody had asked me if I could come and help him uh, at his workshop for uh, about six months. It's just kind of the peak season for commercials in, in Cape Town. And um, I said yes to it, uh, thinking I'd just fill six months of my time and then continue with whatever else I was doing. And I had a mechanical background, a technical background. Um, and one thing led to the next and um, over 20 years later, I'm still doing special effects. So I never, I never really left. Um, it was accidental, like I said, but, uh, but I fell in love with what we were doing and, and the craziness of what we were doing and having to think on our feet and solve puzzles and things all the time. So, um, so we were wondering how you specifically got involved with Tenet and what that process was like. Okay. Well, Tenet is, um, Tenet was uh, supervised by an American supervisor, uh, Scott Fisher. Um, and uh, Scott Fisher brought on a UK special effects supervisor named Andy Williams. And Andy Williams um, and Andy Williams has brought on a, um, a, an international crew for quite a while. He's got a great team. And uh, I had the privilege of working with him on uh, a few other projects. Um, one of them was Mad Max Fury Road, and then one was Spider-Man. Um, and uh, he asked if we, a few of us would come on and help him on the project, and, and we obviously did. I was, I was um, working on another project at the time uh, in Tunisia. I was supervising that with a, quite a large team. And uh, we got to about one week before the end of that project when I had to fly back, sort out visas to fly to Estonia to help him on Tenet. So we were wondering, um, you're credited as a pyrotechnician on Tenet, and obviously that deals with fire somehow, but uh, could you talk more about what kind of flame work you did? Okay, so, so just to um, clarify, pyrotechnics is fire, but uh, for film, usually when we talk about pyrotechnics, it uh, relates to explosives and and anything related to uh, explosives, um, gas, fuel, fires are related in a way, um, but uh, pyrotechnics is a lot more controlled and needs specific licenses and uh, experience to be a pyrotechnician. So um, there were there was quite a large uh, number of special effects people in on this uh, on the team for Tenet uh, from the European side. Whilst, whilst the American team was prepping in the States on their various locations and with their various rigs. Um, so uh, there's, there's actually, I'd say there's probably half of Andy's team are made up of special effects supervisors in their own right, whether they've supervised um, the floor or prep or features and teams themselves. So, um, I've been doing this for over 20 years, like I said, and I've and I've had a pyrotechnics license for um, in South Africa. Uh, I've been registered as a 
an explosives uh, as a person who's allowed to work with explosives in South Africa for about 14 years. Um, and they just wanted competent people to work with the explosives and have it prepared and have things ready all the time because the director doesn't want to wait and nobody wants to wait on another department. Time is money. And in film, there's a lot of money being thrown at a project. So we've got to keep it as efficient as possible and keep things going as, as efficiently as possible. So, so I'm sure there's a lot of versatility in the different kinds of explosions you're capable of making, but just like on a general movie set, I mean, what are you using to cause, to make things blow up? Is it like TNT? Is it like gasoline? Sorry, I'm just curious. No, 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 that's fine. Um, uh, so the misconception is um, that we're blowing things up all the time. And, uh, and our role as special effects um, people, crew, technicians, is to simulate what the audience is, ex is expecting to see. So, and often we've got to um, overindulge. So A-team type explosions, you know, as somebody throws a grenade, you have a huge big fireball, which doesn't happen in reality. Um, it's very seldom that you use TNT or uh, pentalite or anything like uh, a high explosive uh, in a film shoot um, because it's, it's so concussive, it's so fast. Um, you want things to happen quickly, but in a slow and controlled manner, if I, if I can explain it to you like that. So, um, we use the smallest amount of explosives possible for the biggest effect possible. Um, often it comes down to using black powder um, because it's a, a lot slower, um, a, it's a lot weaker uh, and therefore gives less of a concussive force, uh, less shake on camera, um, but you still get that nice fireball roll or the debris getting thrown out of the pot or the window uh, or the doorway. Um, and also, you, must, you need to remember we have stunt performers, actors, extras, crew, all around. Um, as soon as you start using high explosives, you need to start taking cameras much further back, 200, 300, 400 meters. Um, um, uh, sorry, I work metric. You guys work imperial. So, uh, so you got to work. You got to. You start. You got to start stepping We're the big dumb Americans. Away. It's okay. okay. <laughs> Yeah, we're the ones in the wrong. The rest of the world hasn't figured out. <laughs> um, so we try and get the action and the um, the actors and stunt performers a lot closer together. And and in order to do that, we need to be able to make the explosion less powerful um, with, so that they're not injured. So we use soft debris. Uh, we use um, dust that are okay and actor-friendly. Um, and not flammable in most cases, because a lot of dusts, believe it or not, um, would ignite and, and create their own explosion when ignited in, um, in fine particle matter. So uh, we've, we've just got to make sure that it's all controlled and um, safe for them. You've been credited as a special effects technician, supervisor, foreman, assistant, coordinator, and um, those are all obviously different, but in the different roles, but in the same field. So we were wondering if you could break down the hierarchy of who who gives orders to who and, you know, that sort of thing. Okay. So um, ordinarily you'd start as, it depends where, you, where you're working also, I suppose, um, on which structure you're working. Um, we're based 
I'd say it would probably based a lot more on the European way of working than the American way of working, but the structure pretty much works the same. Um, you start as a trainee, um, you you learn in the workshop, you learn on the floor, you you carry the heavy stuff, you clean the gear, cleaning the gear, fixing the gear, um, that teaches you the fundamentals of how the gear works, how the equipment, what 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 could go wrong, how to fix what goes wrong, and as you do your time, you you slowly see what you're learning and feeding off of other people's um, experience and off of each job. So from trainee, you go up to some some people have a junior technician, some people just go straight into a technician. Um, that would just be the next level of responsibility, and then from there you'd start going to a technician. Um, this, I know in the UK they have a, um, a grading system which uh, you have to do specific amounts of days or a specific amount of shifts on a project uh, to be able to get to the next grading and then the next grading and the next grading and somebody has to certify or verify or sign off on that and say you're competent enough to be called a technician or a senior technician now and as you move up the grades the responsibility gets more and more um, intense, obviously. Um, you've done your time, you've made a lot of mistakes, you've fixed those mistakes, you've learned from other people's mistakes, and that's kind of how you work your way up the ranks. Um, essentially, from a senior technician's point, senior tech could pretty much run a floor. He could take over from a supervisor if something were to happen to the supervisor. Um, senior techs manage workshops. They they kind of handle all the all the paraphernalia, everything that needs to happen on set. A senior technician would take that responsibility and make sure the people below him, the techs, the junior techs, the trainees, understand what needs to happen for the day, and they get it ready. Uh, from there, many senior techs also uh, are prep supervisors, or workshop supervisors, or even floor supervisors. Those are um, supervisory roles underneath the um, the authority of the supervisor or assistant supervisor and um, they either run what's happening in the workshop that everything is happening and comes out timelessly everything happens safely in the workshop if they're prep supervisors which I've been on several projects um, it means you go up out ahead of the team you make sure the sets are ready for the set team to come in and do what they have to do um, for instance, on Spider-Man, we were working nights for a sequence, and the team that was working nights would then finish what they were doing, make the set safe, leave, and then the next team would come in, change out gas cylinders, um, move out debris, change fuels, get get everything ready for the very next day's sequences so that camera is not waiting for special effects to take three or four hours to set a sequence up. So you often have bigger movies where you have a team that films the sequence uh, and the team that sets it up for the next, sets the next sequence up the next day. And after prep supervisor and you're moving up the ranks, the supervisor is the person in charge of special effects. Um, and the, sorry, I, uh, sorry, I left out something. The floor supervisor is the person usually that runs the floor. Um, in other words, runs the, the unit that works with camera. He runs the team making the smoke on, on camera, um, making the fires, all the effects that are required. And he liaises directly with the director and the DOP 
the director of photography and art directors and, and gets everything happening on set as required. And then from there, he usually speaks directly to the supervisor. And the supervisor is the man that, the man of the plan. He's the guy that knows what he wants. Um, we work to his drumbeat, really. So uh, we'll do tests. He'll video this. We'll video the tests. He'll review the tests and he'll critique them because at the end of the day, it's um, it's a team effort, but it's his reputation that got the team on the job. So we've got to make sure we work towards his vision. And usually his vision is closely knitted with the DOP and director's vision. Usually they've got a great symbiosis. So um, they have all their meetings. They filter it down to us. We prep it. We show them. They tell us if they like it or not, and, and that's how it goes. So you just brought up uh, your work on Spider-Man Far From Home. Could you tell us how you got involved with that and what um, well, what your role was? Um, okay, so again, that was the same supervisor as I worked with on Mad Max, uh, Fury Road, and Tenet, um, and Andy Williams. And uh, he just phoned me up one day. Actually, I was on holiday in Germany. I hadn't been on a holiday in a long time, and I was just about to go into a rock festival for three days. And he phoned me as I walked in on the very first day, I just walked through the gate and um, asked if I was interested. And um, I didn't know what the project was. Most of the time, actually, to be to totally honest, I never really know what I'm saying yes to. Um, somebody will phone me and say, are you interested in working in Abu Dhabi or Tunisia or somewhere? Uh, and I'll first find out who the team is or who the supervisor is, unless the supervisor himself is phoning. And uh, and then usually my answer is yes, because I hate to turn work away and I love a challenge. And um, so I took the job. I said to Andy that I would take the job. Um, I had to release myself from a project in Egypt, uh, which was pending, but they couldn't commit. Um, and and they flew me over to the UK to play on Spider-Man. Um, when I flew over to Spider-Man, I didn't really know what my, my role was going to be. Um, they needed to fill a few senior positions. And I was given pre uh, prep supervisor and pyrotechnic supervisor for Spider-Man. Um, the pyrotechnic supervisor that was on it was leaving to go to another project. And uh, I was going to just take over from where he left off. And um, so we did a lot of testing for Pyro until the two units, because some, sometimes you could you could try and run with two units like Pyrotechnics and Prep, but they just got so busy. The sequences got so busy that the workload got too much. So we had to split it up again. And one of the engineers, uh, workshop engineers, was finishing his term as the workshop engineer. And he had been a a supervisor on Mad Max with us, so he took over the the pyrotechnic supervisory role, and I I continue to focus on the prep supervisory role. So uh, you said that you like blindly ag agree to some projects in the past. Was Spider Man one of these, or I had did you have any relationship with like the franchise in the past, or any of the iterations, or were you were you a fan at all, or was this just another thing you were like sure, and you liked the challenge? Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say what I wanted to say on this. I don't know. I don't know if I'd be lambasted or not. Um, Spider-Man isn't my my uh, favorite superhero. 
No, uh, no, we've all got a superhero. We've all got a superhero. Who's yours? Spider-Man. Am I allowed to say? Of course. If uh, uh, if if you won't be blacklisted is it from incri- this is it knowledge. Is incriminating? I'm, I'm worried. I, no, I don't know. I don't know. No. Uh, I, I, to be totally honest, I like Batman. I think Batman is the coolest Classic. guy. But Batman he's, is our favorite DC superhero. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's the coolest, in my opinion. So, um, Spider-Man was a bit of a surprise. I knew they were shoot, they were filming Batman at the time, um, and I was hoping that I was saying yes to Batman. But it also, it didn't really matter because um, working with Andy um, is is a treat. You work with some supervisors or some teams or some directors or some DOPs, and and it feels like you're doing a job. It feels you you really don't want to you you really don't feel like you can give your best because you're not you're not able to. And with Andy and the team, it's a family. It's fun. It's friendly. It's a great environment, and you want to go to work working on a project like that. So no matter what project it could be. I've worked in deepest, darkest Africa. I've worked all over Africa. Um, and it's all about the team at the end of the day. If you've got a, a you could be based in a most exclusive five-star hotel, eating the best food, getting paid the best money, and the job can be terrible just because of the team that you're working with. On the flip side of that, I've earned very low rates in, well, uh, low rates in inverted commas. Um, in in deepest darkest Africa, literally like in Ghana, in West Africa, uh, three hours, three, more than three hours out of the capital, in a tiny little village, uh, where the only hotel is the best hotel is a four star hotel. Uh, internet reception is terrible. Um, electricity is only on some some time of the day. Running water is a novelty, you know. Um, Yes, the job, and that, that was Beast of No Nation. The job was next level fantastic. Um, the director, Carrie, was inspirational. He was he's an amazing guy to work with. The team was fantastic. The locations were hard. We had to make a plan all the time, but we had fun every single day. And that's the difference. That's that's kind of why we do what we do. We don't want to, if you um, if you do what you love, you're never working a day in your life. And that's the reality. That is the reality of it. And that's why when Andy phones, it's normally, yeah, I'll work on that job because you know Andy's got a great team. It's the same team he tries to bring in all the time. So that's the long and the short of it again. Sorry, I do talk a lot. No, please. Um, yeah, now uh, Carrie Fukunaga is doing a Bond movie. So I know, I'm I know. to see that. A Bond, as a ch- I, I grew up with Bond. And Bond was always my dream project. When I finally started doing special effects seriously, I've always wanted to work on a Bond. And I've been, uh, people had toyed with possibly getting me on. Um, I haven't worked with many of the teams that do the Bond project. But um, I know Carrie was doing that. And I was quite uh, disappointed I didn't get to work with, first off, Carrie, because he's an amazing director to work with. He really is. And then also to work on Bond, it would have been two birds with one stone. Yeah. Uh, I know Bond has had its ups and downs scheduling wise. Um, so maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's a blessing in disguise. 
Yeah, you didn't have to deal with Daniel Craig's broken ankle and such. Um, Bond is also something of a never-ending franchise. Yeah, so I'm sure. I, I'm sure you'll I, get your shot. I don't think all hope is gone for you. I'm not, but but it, it depends on which circles you work in and um, uh, and what you're busy with at the time, really. So I seem to be pretty busy. Like I'm not going to lie, I'm really really busy. Um, I seldom have time for a holiday. Um, and that's no exaggeration. So, um, yeah, it's just about getting the right job at the right time to be able to run on to the next and the next and the next. Um, so you've mentioned um, having worked on Mad Max Fury Road a few times, and that's one of the greatest action movies ever made. And uh, it's well known for its practical, for its, for its extreme practicality. Yeah. And I assume that was a very tough but rewarding shoot. Um, and I was uh, hoping you could shed some light on what that experience was like. Mad Max, man, Mad Max, <laughs> like, like, it's difficult to put that project into words. The scale of it was just next level. It was of the most epic proportions. Um, again, Andy was a supervisor. We had two supervisors and an assistant supervisor on that job um andy was one of them um and he worked closely with uh, uh an australian supervisor who was also fantastic dan and um the two of them ran their separate parts of the movie um they kind of divided the the uh the projects up and um andy had had worked in South Africa and a few other projects. Uh, Blood Diamond was one of the last ones he'd worked on. So he phoned a, all of the companies, all the special effects companies in South Africa. He he phoned all of the owners and he went, "We need we need local guys um, to fly up to Namibia. We need a lot of uh, hands." And uh, I I was put in touch with Andy and they asked about my team and I'd put a bunch of names forwards. And a lot of the guys went up. And um, I think I went at the end of January. I was still finishing a few projects and I have I had a company running back in South Africa. So I had to manage things in South Africa as well as work on a project in Namibia for him. Um, and I think eventually we had about 140, I think at one point like 148, 156 special effects people at once. But they also did rotate in and rotate out. Um, we had, uh, man, like I, I, when I say it was massive, it was huge. Um, I think uh, the last count, I think was nine, nine trucks on sets just for special effects department. We had first unit, second unit, um, prep unit, rigging unit. Uh, we had overflow truck. We had, we had a drive cell, which is what I dealt with. I dealt with the drive cells. Some people call them pods. Um, which the stunt drivers sit in a unit which is bolted to either side of a vehicle or on the roof or on the front of the vehicle. And they steer the vehicle whilst the actors sit in the cab and look as if they're driving. Um, and the stunt performers actually maneuver the vehicles in and around the action. I think there was six or eight special effects supervisors in supervisory roles underneath the actual supervisors each person got to deal with their own with their own 
specific department. We had a pyrotechnics unit. We had a, um, a simulated um, a driving simulation unit, which we called the SimTrav unit. Um, so, and work, working with George Miller was, again, an absolute treat. Um, I didn't have to work with him a lot. Uh, I just needed to get everything prepped so the, the stunt drivers could get in, climb into the drive cell and drive the truck or drive the hero vehicle of sorts, the next car or whatever it was at the time. Um, and they would tell me whether we had, we often had two or three of each vehicle so that first unit could shoot with one, second unit could shoot with one, and then we'd have an, a backup. Um, so they'd say, okay, um, war rig number one needs to drive cell on the left-hand side. War rig number three needs to drive cell on the front. And we'd just get that ready. We'd make sure that we'd problem solve. We'd make sure everything was working. We'd do all of our safety checks. The stunt person would climb in, do his safety runs, check everything up, give us feedback. We'd tweak anything we needed to tweak, change the braking system for it, um, give a little bit more throttle, whatever the story was. Um, the the once the wheels were in motion for Mad Max, it just it just snowballed and it just it worked so well. It was such a fluid machine that really was incredible to work on and see so many professionals come together with one vision, no egos, just want to get something done. And it was it was a, a a young boy's dream to work on. It's a it's another level. We were wondering uh, if there's any form of creative collaboration between special effects artists on set and how you coordinate with each other on set. Um, special effects crew collaborating with special effects crew or special effects crea uh, cr collaborating with other departments? Uh, both. Or, or okay. Yeah, and, and where do your orders come from? Or what's your relationship with, with the, the higher-ups of the director? Okay. So um, depending on the, the way the, the script works or the, the production's working or how the director and the DOP work, um, usually special effects gets a broad idea from the director of what he requires. Um, if it's for the creative, uh, he needs to um, he needs to work according to what the director requires in, in, in visions. Uh, that may be um, from the smallest detail, which has a, a, a greater significance somewhere else down the line. Um, otherwise, fundamentally, we work according to what the DOP requires from us. So with the DOP, they, they usually have an understanding of what sort of lighting they need, what, what feel they need for the lighting, what the mood of the room, to get the best for the visual, for, for, for what we see. Um, so often we work very closely with the DOP. Um, the director of photography will, will tell us what levels of smoke he needs, if he needs smoke, uh, what levels of fires he needs, and, and where the best position for us to put those effects would be so that he's getting the maximum bang for his buck, in a sense. Um, also, then we 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 have to work closely with the uh, the production designer who has the visual of the set. They design the set, they build the set, they 
they've they've got their idea of what they want to present to the audience, to the director, and to the GOP. So we often have many extensive meetings with production designer, art directors, DOP, and director. Um, that is if we're in a supervisory role. So if I was a supervisor, that's the, my steps. If I was a senior technician on a job, which I often am, um, my supervisor has all those meetings. And then he comes and he goes, he says to us, this is what we require. This is where we require it. And we'll start doing our tests accordingly. We'll show him, we'll give a visual. And things change on set on the day, obviously. But he also needs to understand what the requirements are because he's got to communicate the effects requirements to the health and safety person. Sometimes we have our own. And he's got to do the risk assessments accordingly so we can mitigate risks on set. Um, so he's always in the loop for all of that. So, so there's a lot of communication between the special effects crew in special effects. But then there's also a lot of communication with the hierarchy, that the, the senior techs or the floor supervisor and the director and those uh, those guys to to make sure we're giving them the best of what they can. Well, since you're, you've talked about, it seems like the special effects team works more closely with the DOP. Um, and to sort of bring it back around to Tenet, um, while you only uh, worked for a little bit on it, um, what was Hoytman Hoytma uh, like to work with? who's been Christopher Nolan's DP for the past three sure. films. Sure. Um, I didn't, again, I didn't, because I was um, in pyrotechnics, we were doing all the preparation, getting all the prep ready, um, especially for the uh, uh, sequence. And I don't know if anyone's watched it. So I don't, I, we, we I don't give anything away. Okay. Yeah, we, we, so, we've both seen it. Okay. So in the, in the theater scene, there's a lot of action that happens there. And we had to get, um, redresses ready for that constantly so that there was little waiting. Um, so, so we were just always redressing, redressing, redressing. I didn't have to deal much with, um, uh, Christopher Nolan or DOP. The floor supervisor deals directly with them all the time. He's, he's pretty much tethered to the hips. So if, if they even start to think about the level of smoke, or the level of fire or something, he's already started to set that in motion. He's trying to preempt everything. So um, I didn't I didn't actually have to get too, in, too involved with that. Too many cooks spoil the broth, you know, so we try and keep it very controlled. So on Tenet, what were, were you working or prepping the uh, opening opera prologue? Um, we, we prepped all the all that and the bullet hits, the body hits on the uh, on the security, on the um, also on the uh, some of the cast in the or stunt people in the audience, and then some of the um, people in the orchestra also. Um, so how how long does the did the prep uh, did the prep take on uh, the opera scene or you know how how long what how long does it take to prep a that specific sequence. Um, I think I think I was there for um, just short of three months, if I can remember correctly. Um, and in that time, we prepped um, all sorts of pyrotechnics effects, so explosions in cars, sparks on cars, bullet hits in the radiators, um, bullet hits in the walls and the frames and, and the reversing bullet hits, uh, bullet hits in mirrors, 
body hits on on all their their webbing uh, seat backs windows etc cetera, etc cetera. so in the t all the time I was there I never stopped prepping pyro we tested every single day we shot every single test uh, we passed on the information and we got critiqued on that and then we evolved and, and changed and manipulated what we had to do again the um, one of the people that was in our unit um, is from Malta. His name is Kenneth Kassar. He's a supervisor from Malta, and he was also in, in uh, the pirate unit with me. And um, he'd been there for about a month and a half before I got there, I think, or maybe about a month. And all he was doing was the, re the bullet hit reverse, you know, so everything is in, in reverse. So you see a hole and it closes. And he must have shot a, maybe a thousand or two thousand iterations of and variations of um, different surfaces, different products, different flexibility, all sorts of things. We did so many tests that if he had hair, he would have probably pulled it out. Honestly, it just it starts becoming really um, you got to kind of step away, take a breather because you get so focused on it you 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 kind of lose focus of the periphery and there was there was essentially three special effects pyrotechnicians prepping um we had a, a pyrotechnics supervisor from australia uh rodney burke he's a great guy he was also with us on mad max um incredibly clever guy when it comes to pyrotechnics um and all we did all the time was prepped and had boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of stuff ready in case we needed to change it or in case um, Mr. Nolan decided he didn't like the scrub in a specific place on the back of the seat we could take that cover off put a new cover on and there was a scrub in a different place so we were we were six steps ahead all the time yet we always felt like we were three steps behind so when you're prepping on a film like this are you working in like an equipment warehouse or are you like outside in the elements where the scene will eventually take place again it depends on on the the job and the requirements generally we would do all of our tests in the comfort of our workshop um do as many of the tests we can on on the bench because it's so much easier our tools are there the consumables are there um the pyrotechnics is there so we can just chop and change as we need until we get a test that we're starting to get happy with and then we'd maybe go out to a shooting range or a blasting site or a safe zone where we're allowed to if we have to for instance blow a car up or cannon a car or do something very specific which can't be shot indoors then we'll go to a safe area uh, we'll set up our cameras we'll get all our permits in place we'll prep the car as if it's ready for the sequence. We'll film it from the same angles that we imagine the director and DOP needed to be shot from and storyboarded. And once that's done, we'll get it edited and send it off. And if we get thumbs up, we know we've done well. If we get some critique, then we, we go back to the drawing board or we, we know just to tweak something here and there because of all of our tests. Most of us have done it for so long, though, that if, if you were to ask us to do a specific effect within one or two tries, you're going to have it on the nail. So um, it's easy enough. We just like to test it and shoot the tests so that we know that 
we understand exactly what the director and GOP are asking us to do. And there's no breakdown of communication. This is kind of a weirdly specific question, but I've always wondered it since I was a kid. Um, when you have to do like bullet holes on a car or like showing like the impact of guns on a car, literally what do you have to do to get that effect? I mean, I'm sure it's it varies depending upon what severity and whatnot, but like generally. Okay. Um, again, person to person, uh, special effects company to special effects company and country to country, it varies slightly, but fundamentally um, we'd drill a hole. So we pre-make the hole, we pre-make the dent. I'm giving you all of our secrets away. You guys better better understand it. If I get hung, drawn and quartered, I'm, I'm coming back to you, right? So uh, we drill a hole, um, usually um, big enough so that you can see it on camera. It's not always exactly the right size hole. So shot by a nine millimeter doesn't need to be a nine millimeter hole. Some people like to do that and go to that extreme. Some people prefer to make it slightly bigger or smaller. So we, we make the indentation, we prep the surface. Often we, uh, we sand it down so you get some shiny contrast and you can see the metal. Um, often we, we t make little tears in as well, so it looks quite realistic. We put the squib inside. Um, we use what you guys, I think, call Bondo. Is it Bondo? It's um, like a <clears throat> um, putty. It's body putty for cars. So uh, if you had an accident, somebody put some putty over the car and it goes hard, we kind of put that over, but we make it softer. We use a, a soft, softer version of that. Um, and then when you put a wire, the wires to um, a firing system, it creates a small explosion. It's very localized and it blows that putty out in pieces. And all of a sudden you've revealed a hole. Oh. So, so the car is never actually, the car, the, that hole's already been pre-made. So it's just the putty yeah. that's, oh, that's interesting. Thank yeah. you. If, if, you've, if you've ever seen real bullet holes in the car, um, they're never like, they are in a movie. I mean, again, we, we A-team it. We really do take it to the next level and, and dramatize it because to see an explosion on camera is boring. To see a bullet hit in, the, in a window or a car door is boring. If you, if, if you exaggerate it, all of a sudden it's that much more impactful. So um, changing gears a little bit, you worked on Avengers Age of Ultron. Um, yeah. And we were wondering what that was like. Um, Age of Ultron. Well, um, that was that was a long time ago as well. Um, Age of Ultron. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of background story to Age of Ultron. Um, I got a I got a phone call. We we just started up my company again after Mad Max, and I just started focusing on a bunch of projects. And I did in that year we did 13 projects. 13. TV series, movies, um, miniseries in one year. They weren't all from beginning to end. Some of them were uh, one week or two weeks, but we, we were really busy. And we were busy in commercials at the same time. And I got a phone call from someone asking if I could supply equipment and crew for a project in Johannesburg. And I uh, asked the question was, who's going to be the supervisor? And they told me who the supervisor was. Uh, it was a local person. And I said, well, if, if you're using him as a supervisor, why aren't you using his equipment and his, 
and his team. And they said, well, he doesn't have the team or equipment. So I, I turned the job down right in the beginning. I said no to the person that had phoned me. I know him really well. And I know the supervisor really well. Um, but I just felt that I didn't want to be in a position where I'm sending my team and my equipment to somebody else's job. That means we can't continue doing what we were doing and I'm not being employed on the project. It kind of felt like a little bit, um, like as working, like as farming backwards or like it just didn't make any sense, you know? Um, and then my other thing was why wasn't, why weren't we optioned for the project in the first place if they want to use our equipment and our crew? Um, and then ironically enough, the team that worked with me on Mad Max phoned me the same day and went, hey, have you got the call? Are you on this job? Have you taken it? And I said, I just turned them down. And they went, what are you talking about? And I went, well, they didn't option me as a supervisor. So I said no. And um, uh, a few events happened back to back, ironically. And I got a phone call the very next day from the person that did the interview asking if I could come for the interview, which I did. And immediately we were selected to do the job. Um, so I, I took the job on in Johannesburg as the South African supervisor um, to assist Paul Corwald, um, who was the international supervisor. And Paul Corwald's done phenomenal projects as well. He's, he's, um, he's a genius supervisor and his team was fantastic. So we learned a lot from them, but it was just, um, it was an interesting um, sequence of events that led us to actually work on the job, even though I turned it down. And I'm really glad we were selected eventually to work on the job and um, and we got to play on that because we made a lot of connections. My team's eyes were open to a lot of new new things and how international projects really work because I'd, I'd worked on international projects, but they hadn't. Um, so it was a great eye-opener for a lot of the South African teams, even though it was, I think we only shot for 10 days in Johannesburg, I think. But we prepped for about three months. It was nonstop intense preparation. We, we we blew up a lot of cars. We broke a lot of cars and trucks. We we really had a lot of fun and a lot of resources at our disposal. That was good. Changing gears once again, uh, just a little bit. Uh, you worked on Sense8, which is a TV show. Um, and this is kind of a two-parter. One is... A, how was that like? I'm a big fan of the Wachowskis, and if yeah. there's any sort of information you can give on that, that'd be great. And then um, how working on TV versus film is different. Uh, the general consensus has been that it's just a lot faster, but uh, yeah. Um, okay, so I worked on Sense8 as the Kenyan supervisor um, for one of the supervisors, in actual fact, for the floor supervisor that interviewed me for Avengers Age of Ultron, then phoned me up and said, I've got a project in in Kenya and I'm supervising it internationally. He'd moved up from floor supervisor. He'd broken away to become his own a supervisor in his own right. And uh, Gareth asked me if I could, if I would be willing to work in Kenya and if I'd be willing to put my team on again and once again, bring my, my equipment on. Um, and obviously I said, yes, it's once again, it's in Kenya. It's a great challenge. It's working with a nice team. Um, so we, we did the project. We, we moved a bunch. We have, I moved the 40 foot container 
to Kenya and we prepped in Kenya. Uh, Gareth had eight countries. I think he was working in prepping and shooting in eight different countries. Um, so he had his hands full. He obviously couldn't micromanage each country. So he got a supervisor for each country and he flew around with, with uh, Lana Wachowski and, and the film crew and they'd, they'd recce, they'd do all their notes, they'd pass on the notes to that country's supervisor. They'd move on to the next country and the next and the next and they would leapfrog. And, um, and then we'd prep everything in advance. And when they get to, when they got to our destination, all of our team and some of their guys jumped on and did the project. Uh, working with Lana, great, absolutely great. Um, Lana knows exactly what she wants. Uh, she's got a vision, she just gets it done. Um, uh, the DOP was next level, um, incredible. The, the team there was really nice. Working in Kenya, is in, I haven't got a bad thing to say about any country I've worked in actually, but Kenya was a tough, tough location to shoot in again. Um, I keep on saying Africa is not for sissies. Working in Kenya was really tough, but um, the with the challenges comes so much um, grat grat gratification, you know, so much satisf satisfaction. Um, so after we've completed the job, you know, you can just sigh a sigh of relief and go like, we've we've really done this. Um, so we finished in Kenya and then obviously straight away the last shoot day the very next day they're on a plane and they're off to another location and then another location and so they they really had a, a rough time the uh the film crew on the, the crew that was filming all the locations really had a hard hard project um but they also they structured it so that uh Lana would shoot some of the episodes and then another director would come in and shoot their episodes and they kind of rolled it like that um, shooting episodicals is challenging, um, but also forgiving, I think, because you can, you, sometimes you, you, you piggyback one episode sequences on another because they, they kind of run in tandem. So you're often jumping between directors, DOPs, different teams, but, um, the schedule is a lot tighter usually on a, on a TV series than on a feature film. So, um, ooh, you worked on Fast and Furious 9, and we are big fans of the franchise. And is there anything you could tell us about that experience? Fast and Furious. Um, so I left Tenet for Fast and Furious. Um, again, they were, they were shooting several locations. Um, and I'd originally been offered to work in Thailand as the prep supervisor in Thailand, and I said no because we were working in Tunisia and once I've been in Tunisia for almost six months and I just wanted a holiday. So I said no to, to Fast and Furious. And then I got a phone call for Tenet with Andy and I said yes, not because it was a Christopher Nolan job or because I knew what I was working on, but because it was Andy. Um, and eventually the supervisor from Fast and Furious, I'd worked with some of his team, they phoned repeatedly and said they needed help and would I be interested in working in Georgia, the country Georgia, not the place in America? And um, I eventually said yes to it and um, flew over to Georgia. And from the day I landed in Georgia till the day I left Georgia, uh, until the day we finished shooting, we pretty much didn't stop 
we uh, I was there for I think three months or just over three months and I worked very nearly every single day I think I had between three and six days off in three months um, it was a very 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 busy schedule with uh, huge requirements the, the the stress on that was incredible like really um, so I was prep supervisor and workshop supervisor and um, we had to really create the impossible and and we were doing all this second unit stuff all the action stuff so it was extreme and complicated rigs um, with very little time frame to build it and Georgia isn't isn't as um, advanced in certain aspects as others you know like trying to find welders and suppliers and machinery suppliers and just consumable suppliers was quite often um, taxing it's quite often really difficult to find any of that so um, it really took every ounce of strength to keep to keep on track and um, on schedule on that project and um, we had the supervisor for that project would fly into Georgia quite often come have all of his meetings do all the the large sequences then fly back to the UK that for the for the weekend prep over the weekend get ready for Monday to Thursday and in, in the UK then quickly fly back to Georgia again and catch up on what we had to do there so he was uh, the supervisor on that job was also run off his feet the, the schedule was insane um, the expectations were high um, but I, I we didn't miss one single rig or um, gag that was required from us which was which was really great well that's great um, I think I'll move on to what will be our final question and um, we started this podcast in quarantine um, and we've asked every one of our guests how they've been handling it and film production has started to come back so we were, we were just wondering what what, are, what have you been up to um, so uh, I was busy on a project just before lockdown. And that was um, a project that they're busy wrapping it up now. Um, I was shooting in France and then Ireland. We started with Ireland's prep and then I had to leave. Um, I, at the same time, I had a team working on a project in South Africa, a South African movie. And um, when I got back, I just made sure everything was still running as it should. Uh, and then we went into a full lockdown in South Africa also. So our film stopped um, also. Uh, so that also went into a, hi an, a hiatus. <clears throat> um, but uh, after, um, after we started easing our lockdown a little, um, our project started up again and we got to finish our project. Uh, so I, I at least got to play a little bit um, where other people had still been sitting at home waiting for work to come in because all the big studios had put their jobs on hold because of the risks and, and implications. Um, it's been taxing for, for I think for for everyone in the film industry, we're uh, we're busybodies, we we're creatives, we we want to be busy. We want to. Our job is not a nine to five job. Um, it's not a Monday to Friday job. It's a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365 um, days a year. So we want to be busy, and um, it's our passion. So if we're not doing that and we're not creating, if 
if I'm not blowing something up or breaking something or creating something or designing something, I get a little bit anxious. Um, and I think that's the case for most people in the film industry. So uh, I kept myself busy um, with some applications and some uh, uh, trying to do some uh, accreditation um, and, and just up the ante in the film industry and special effects. Uh, and I did a lot of baking and cooking and um, listened to a lot of music and rode my motorbikes when I could. So yeah, it was, it was really hard though. It being in lockdown for everyone, I think was a complete change of pace. But um, I think it also, it was a welcome change of pace for a lot of people in the film industry because we live such busy lives. We kind of live past one another. So in three years, three and a half years, I think I'd maybe spent three, four months in South Africa out of three, three and a half years. So it was a good, good way for me to get to see my family again. My mom said this has been the best year for her ever because she's finally seen her kids. You know, we've my her two her two kids are never around because we got, live really busy lives. So uh, she's she's super super happy to hear about that. And then and then I'm very fortunate that I've got a team in Mauritius on a project now. Um, I was supposed to be there, uh, but um, I've got a few other projects pending. So. I've got a team in Mauritius. They flew over to Mauritius. And because Mauritius didn't have any COVID cases, um, the team went straight into a, a designated hotel. They were in isolation for, for two full weeks, got tested regularly. And once everybody was 100% confirmed that they had no cases of COVID in the film team in that hub, they were released out to start sourcing and doing their meetings and things. Um, so we were very fortunate that we still had work taking over also where we could. Well, uh, I think that just about wraps it up. Um, thank you so much to our guest, Kevin Bitters. Um, um, watch Tenet in theaters and drive-ins now. Um, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate your time. Thanks for the time, guys, and um, good luck with the rest of your podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much to our guest, Kevin Bitters, for talking with us. It was very enjoyable. Um, he was the pyrotech... Yeah, sorry, I dealt with a burp there. Can I restart? Yeah, go ahead. Maybe I'll leave it in the edit. Fuck you, Parth. How about you leave that in the edit? Yeah, I will. Now I'm definitely leaving it in the edit. I was kind of joking before, but now it's just too funny to me. Thank you to our guest, Kevin Bitters, for coming on the show. We really appreciate your time. It was swell chatting with you. He was the technician, uh, pyrotechnician on Tenet. So he dealt with all the explosions and bullet holes and stuff, as you learned. Parth asked him some super cool questions, and I was there too. Um, Parth, what, what comes next to this little podcast of ours? Do we have additional episodes, or is this it? Well, we have our discussion scheduled for next week, where we're both going to talk about Tenet. Trent's going to get the opportunity to see it for a second time. I will be reviewing it solely on my first um, viewing. Wait, you're not going to see um, it again? Oh, well, it's the, not playing near me. Well, the drive-in is like two hours from yeah, me. Or, the, yeah, the drive-in's an hour away from me, and um, 
it's also not playing it like in its first showing it's going to be playing it at like 10 o'clock which is just too late yeah parth you uh you don't really do well after you're like a gremlin you know it's like don't let him watch tenet after 9 p.m specifically tenet everything else i'm fine or he'll turn into a little monster and then he'll cause trouble exactly that's why parth whenever we watch movies whenever we watch tenet together it's typically in the daytime it's for my own safety exactly of all of the times that we've watched tenet together well anyways um after that we'll just you'll just have to see i'm gonna leave you guys in suspense maybe i don't know i I don't know i don't know maybe parth hasn't planned episodes in advance which yes yes audience is irresponsible as this as the scheduling advocate of this show i'm upset with him and you guys should be too so maybe he'll give us some answers when he starts to do his job thanks for that trent let's um let's just uh let's get out of here how about that hmm? oh yeah go um go find us some more episodes get to work champ all right i'm gonna go work on getting us some more people meanwhile um i'm just gonna sit i'm just gonna sit quietly yeah and you guys can wait till next week for our discussion on tenant see you guys